It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we reflect on the end of the Champions League group stage. We'll ask who are the favourites for the title outright? What's happened to Chelsea over the past few matches as they finish as runners-up in their group? We'll also ask, is this the lowest point for Barcelona? Are Leeds United fatigued by Bielsa Ball? And how will new Covid restrictions affect football? All that and more on this episode of The Game. Hello, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wilsoncroft alongside Tom Clark and Ian Hawkey. We'll also be joined by Rick Broadbank talking leads a little bit later on, but we've got to start by looking back on this week in the Champions League, the final group games, and there were a couple of surprises. Uh, let's begin with Chelsea's trip to the homeland of their owner, Roman Abramovich. It finished Zenit St. Petersburg 3 Chelsea three, but that coupled with Juventus's win over Malmo means Chelsea, the uh, European champions, of course, finish as runners-up in Group H with Juve instead at the top. The Chelsea manager, Thomas Tuchel, felt his side weren't really themselves after a positive start to the game. What do we think he meant by that, Ian? They're in a bit of a blip by their high standards, aren't they? And I, I guess the most obvious symptom is you associate Tuchel's Chelsea with being, you know, really well organized defensively and they've conceded three goals again. I guess that's the that's that's the most obvious single problem, single flaw that's emerged over the last couple of weeks. There's a sort of sense that at the moment they're not getting both halves of the team right at the same time. They scored three goals in St Petersburg. Timo Werner looked really good. Maybe the defenders were really surprised to see that and lost their bearings. Yeah, they're just yeah, they've 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 certainly fallen off, haven't they? Of the of the of the top three, most conspicuously. And um, yeah, you, uh, Tucker will clearly be very disappointed at, at the slack goals they're conceding. They're they're a little unlucky with one of them against West Ham, but um, I, and and of course now to be second seed in the in the draw really does look like a considerable disadvantage. Tom, no N'Golo Conte, no Mateo Kovacic, no Jorginho for Chelsea. One win in four or three in seven, if you want to look that far back. Do, do you think their season's faltering? Stuttering rather than faltering, I'll say. I don't know whether they're, they're any different, but I'm going to pick a slightly different word to you because uh, it feels a little bit less harsh. Yeah, it's a little blip, as Ian said. But in some respects, I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing because... You know, they're not falling away in the title race. They are through in the Champions League. 
And as he showed last season in winning the Champions League, I think he can set up teams to do quite well against the bigger sides, teams that people might say when the draw comes around, oh God, that's a difficult draw for Chelsea. Um, I would back Tuchel to set Chelsea up to get through that tie. And I do think watching the game, there were a couple of positives, as Ian hinted at. Timo Werner looked really sharp. Um, his second goal in particular is the kind of goal that he's just not scored for Chelsea the whole time he's been there. It shows what perhaps the first goal, a tap-in on the goal line can do for your confidence. But And in, in creating Romelu Lukaku's goal as well, he was a big part of that and he looked really sharp. And Lukaku's scoring is a good thing as well because he's been out of sorts as we've discussed on recent podcasts. So yeah, a little bit of a stutter, a little blip, but with those players showing a few bright sparks, I thought Kepa was fantastic. Made some great, great saves. And so in terms of being the goalkeeper's union, which you know I quite like to pretend that I'm part of from time to time on the podcast, with some discussions around Mendy, I think that's no bad thing to have him as a backup if you decided to switch it at any point. Not that I'm saying they should at the moment, but yeah, enough positives to not be too worried as a Chelsea fan, I think. Do you think Kepa should have saved the final goal, the equaliser? Oh, no. I'm just, Come it was on. just a question. I was more disappointed with the lacklustre closing down on the edge of the box there was a couple of Chelsea players that they looked like they were a team already qualified and just wanted to get the plane home and I felt a little bit sorry for Kepa in that moment yeah a little bit of of complacency I think you are Mm. right about that we mentioned Timo Werner already Romelu Lukaku also on the score sheet Ian do you see that there's going to be a good chance of them forging a real partnership for Chelsea on the evidence of that game yes and If you look at their characteristics, logic says, yes, they should. Lukaku last season had a really good partnership with Lautaro Martinez, who I think is probably a better player all around than Timo Werner. But you can see that that having somebody quick playing off him, you know, should be good. And and Lukaku is a is a you know very generous fellow striker. I guess what you then look at is what might be the sacrifices in terms of the other attacking players and what it would take for Tuchel to decide that this is very much definitively a front two or two in a front three that he are absolutely, you know, first on the team sheet plus plus one other. And I, I think that probably he'd, he'd be some way from doing that at this stage. Chelsea could face Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Ajax or Lille next Really? Three out of four chance, maybe a half chance that they get a draw that you'd expect them to comfortably win, Tom? Do I go for the classic managerial cliche of no such thing as an easy game, Hugh? No, no, I won't. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, some of those ties are definitely more difficult than others. I actually think in a weird way, Ajax might be the more difficult game for this Chelsea team. A little bit more unpredictable. All the hipsters' favourites, of course, doing very well this season, looking quite bright. And I wonder whether, obviously, they wouldn't want Bayern Munich. I wonder whether Ian thinks they'd beat the current Real Madrid team, I think that they probably would. I don't think that fixture comes with as many, as much fear as it used to in the past. I don't know about you, Ian, whether you'd agree that they'd beat Madrid. Uh, well, I mean, you know, they have a they have a recent uh, success to, to look back on and it's not a greatly changed Real Madrid team from last season. However, Real Madrid have a very good manager and they are, they are coming good um, at the moment. I say it's not a vastly changed team from last season. It isn't in terms of personnel, but what Carlo Ancelotti has done very successfully is is bring the best out of several players. Vinicius, above all, he's been outstanding this season. And you know, if he doesn't 
go past you, then he's going to win a free kick or a penalty off you. Um, however, overall, you would favour Chelsea against Madrid. I think that's quite a stark look about the Champions League now that that there are you know three very very strong Premier League clubs and Bayern Munich, and then I think the gap beneath that is looks quite big at the moment. Madrid would probably be at the top along with PSG of the of the next best, I would say. And Manchester United, thanks Ian. Appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> well Hugh, you whenever I uh, big up Manchester United you contradict me, so I just thought we might reverse roles. <laughs> well I was only joking about that as well. Yeah, yeah. You won't hear any positivity from me about United anytime soon. I think one thing to bear in mind possibly with Madrid is that the Spanish league at the moment is looking like a one-horse race. So it, it's very possible that, you know, come February, Ancelotti will be in a position to do a fair amount of rest and rotation ahead of his Champions League tie. It doesn't mean everything, um, but, you know, it might mean something really surprising like Gareth Bale having a game or Eden Hazard reappearing. They, um, you know, they, it's not the greatest Madrid side of the last 10 years, but they do have... And Ancelotti has really cultivated quite good strength in depth and, and you know, and some match winners. Elsewhere, two English sides top their groups. Manchester City were beaten by RB Leipzig in their final group game. Carl Walker was sent off, silly from him. Uh, they could face Atletico Sporting, Inter, Benfica, Salzburg or Atalanta or Villarreal who play a little bit later on. What's the dream draw, Tom, for City? Anyone that is not going to make you say that they're going to play three at the back and overthink it and get knocked out as, <laughs> as, as is your favourite favourite line. I was thinking about City and the Champions League before coming on and wondering whether the title race in the Premier League might play a part and just how tight that will, will almost certainly be at least into the back end of the season whether they win it or not. And the fact that as we've talked so often they haven't quite got a fully settled system I know that's one of the joys of Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. This You never know what you're going to get, as Alison recently said. But I, I just wonder whether it, they could come unstuck in the next round, depending on who they get. I can't, I can't quite decide what a, what a dream draw is because they're in this slightly unsettled, slightly unpredictable uh, mode at the moment. They didn't look great in the match this week. And obviously, Kyle Walker's red card was probably one of the more stupid sendings off I've seen in a long time. So, I mean... I don't know. I think it could be one of those where they don't want the kind of teams that everyone will expect them to beat. That's what they want to avoid. And that maybe, I mean, I keep advocating for English teams to be drawn against the toughest opposition possible, it seems. But I, I do wonder whether that might ha actually help City at this stage, just to kind of sharpen, their, sharpen them up, sharpen their focus, sharpen their attention and help avoid any kind of slip-ups. Ian, what do you think about Manchester City? I'm going to ask about Liverpool maybe being favourites in the Champions League in a moment when we discuss them. Do you think Manchester City have a better chance than they did last season? Uh, yes, I do, because I do think that they have a manager who does who does absorb lessons, take things on. And I, they have strengthened the squad with Grealish and, you know, the development of some of their up-and-coming players continues. So I agree with, with Tom that there's a sort of built-in unpredictableness about City in Europe that, that when you look at their potential opponents you can always come up with questions you know you can you could say oh well you know if they if they get salzburg they'll they'll do it in their sleep but you know salzburg are effective at 
um, getting behind a defence which you know used to be a, a, a city floor. So you can you can always find reasons why why City might in a one-off or a two-legged tie somehow shoot themselves in the foot when they when they shouldn't. But um, I, I I do think they are you know they are they are an improving side in in European terms and. Um, I, I would be very surprised if, if they don't progress through the next round at least. Liverpool became the first English team to win six games out of six in the Champions League group stages. The unrested Mo Salah and Divock Origi scored, but a mainly second string side beat Milan at the San Siro, um, which is, a you know, in terms of names, I guess sounds sends out a message. I would have expected, I think, more from Milan Generally speaking, during this Champions League campaign, they get they go out, of course. Um, but the question on Liverpool is, are they turning into Champions League favourites, like I mentioned a few moments ago? Tom, what do you think? Yeah, they're my favourites. There's something about Jurgen Klopp and this competition and his Liverpool side that just seems to fit to me. Even in tough moments, they seem to find a way through. And this season, they've just looked completely in control of all games, depending on, you know, a bit of uh, madness with Atleti here and there, but still they came through. And as you say, this game, Milan aren't the Milan that we've known in the past these days, but still to be putting out the team that Klopp did and win in such a composed manner, uh, sent a real message. This competition just suits Klopp and this Liverpool side, I think. We often talk about who the opposition wouldn't want to face. And I think if you were talking about your Bayern Munichs, your Real Madrid's, I think, and I don't know whether you guys would agree with me, Liverpool would be, of all of the English sides, the team that they would want to face the least. I think they would; those sides would rather face Manchester City and Chelsea than, than Liverpool. Just one thing in, in the back of my mind is how efficiently Real Madrid knocked them out last season. Now, I, I, I think Liverpool are better and clearly they've, they've got a tremendous momentum now. I suppose the other imponderable is um, Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane and the African Nations Cup. They'll be obviously back for the, the next round, but you know, who knows how fatigued they might be, how out of sync they might have become, because you know, this is Klopp's Liverpool are such a momentum, such a such a mood team. So if Senegal or Egypt were to get to the final of the African Nations Cup, then they only have what, a couple of weeks before the next round in the Champions League. But, you know, th- these are details and, and, and I, I agree with you. I think if you're going to make a favourite at this stage, uh, Liverpool would be it. I, I think the English sides are doing pretty well. We're going to talk about Manchester United next. Um, I'm not sure you could call them one of the favourites, but who knows <laughs> what Ralph Rangnick's going to turn them into over the next couple of months. Up next, we'll discuss his start to life as Manchester United boss. We now have two matches with which to assess Ralph Rangnick's start as Manchester United's interim boss. The 1-0 Premier League win over Crystal Palace and the one all draw with young boys in the Champions League. Both games were at Old Trafford. United do go through as group winners. Rangnick already writing history, becoming the first German coach to win his opening Premier League game. Two things for me were immediately noticeable versus Palace. The first, United playing with an extremely high defensive line, almost Brentfordish, 20 metres inside the opposition half at corners. And the second one was that they were fighting to win the ball in the final third more than we've seen before. They did it 12 times against Palace. Their previous best in the Premier League was seven. Ian, what have you made of Rangnick's so-called revolution? Yeah, I mean, he's he's clearly made a, a good impression. Um, 
possibly with quite kind fixtures. The timing of his, his arrival was quite convenient in in that sense. But yeah, I mean, you, 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 you know, uh, you can see his stamp. He did bold things in selection against young boys, which I think will please fans to, to see that he's open-minded and so on. And, but importantly against Crystal Palace, yes, there were clearly some fresh instructions, some quite bold instructions and, and they were carried out uh, quite efficiently. Um, And he's made all the right noises, hasn't he? He's, um, you know, he's, He's he's praised Cristiano Ronaldo, and um, you know he's 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 been he's been very media friendly. Um, I, I I mean clearly there are there are bigger challenges ahead. I think we will probably inevitably see signs of a manager coming in mid season, which is always awkward, and aspects of the Premier League which possibly surprise him, take him aback. But uh, yeah, so far so good. What sort of things do you expect to take him back? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think he's going to be um, confronted probably uh, quite starkly by the tempo and, and certainly the way, the way that um, affects teams over this period, you know, lots of, lots of fixtures all bumping into one another. Um, I mean, he's got a deep squad to deal with that, but, but you know, that's, that's always a difficult thing for, for, for managers from other European leagues to get used to, you know, the, the lack of a significant winter pause and the all-weather brutality of the Christmas period. Fred looked very confident trying his little awkward passes he does that no one sees coming. Could he have, no, seriously, could he have a huge role under Rangnick? He will until Manchester United finally sign a defensive midfielder of the kind of calibre that they need. Because he's a, he's a trier, as you say. When things are going well for Manchester United, Fred is often highlighted as, oh, isn't he, isn't he good? He puts himself about the pitch. And then when they're going bad, it's Fred isn't good enough. I mean, I also think World is a bit strong. It was a, it was a good finish, wasn't it, for the lad? But on his right leg, it's, come it's on. only for balance. I know, he's, right I know he's left. <laughs> I know he's left footed, but yeah, I think World is a bit strong. Look, in some respects, he he embodies the current Manchester United a little bit because he you know he tries hard, but ultimately he's a bit seven out of ten, and that's really where Man United are at the minute. I think just touching more on Ranić in those two games one thing that is interesting to me and we talked a lot with Constantin about his tactics and how he likes to play and he said didn't he after watching the Arsenal game from the stands that I know you all enjoyed it you English football fans but that's not that kind of football I want I want control and yes he made a lot of changes against uh, young boys and yes there were lots of academy players in there but that that lack of control was still there and I've not seen Manchester United control the game in the way that Ranić's talking about, um, in terms of stopping the opposition and looking like you're going to score in that very efficient and effective way, I've not seen Manchester United play like that for a long time, and I think that is what will take a bit of a time uh, for him to implement. It's positive signs, I think. As Ian said, it's quite smart of him to play a few academy players. Manchester United so synonymous with youth and academy players that. It's, it's a smart move politically to, to give players their debuts to blood some youngsters uh, in a game that didn't matter. I don't know whether Fred is the answer 
Uh, I don't know whether he's the problem, but I, I don't see him having a massively key role at Manchester United long term, no. Uh, we'll clip that one up. We'll use that one at the end of the season when he wins Manchester United Player of the Year. <laughs> well, look, if he does win if he does win Player of the Year, that'll probably sum up Manchester United's season because they will get knocked out of the Champions League in the next round. They won't win any trophies and they'll finish fifth. Whoa, 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 whoa. Take it easy here. Manchester United's problem has been that they've been poorly coached. Ralph Rangnick is there to solve all of those issues. There's talent in the team. We, they could have an incredible year. I agree. I agree. But when you reflect on um, the things we talked about with uh, Constantine on a previous show and some of the things you talked about there, a bit more pressing, Rangnick lighting. So we're liking his teams to win the ball high up the pitch because it's all about trying to then turn that opportunity into a a chance to score a goal. Those things take time. We know they take time to implement. Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, they're fantastic. They're legendary. They both took at least a season, was it? Maybe even more to fully get Liverpool and Manchester City playing the way they want to play. And also you've got a factor in that Ranić's an interim coach. So he's operating in this mode of, am I going to be in charge in the summer? Am I going to have a role as this kind of consultant? I'm not sure. So he is undoubtedly uh, an intelligent and impressive coach who has done great things in the game. But I just don't see it, as I said a few weeks ago, I don't see it being one of those immediate managerial bounces. I think it'll be a, a while before we see the Ralph Rangnick imprint on this Manchester United squad. I thought he did amazingly well in his second game against Young Boys. To start with a team like he did and not lose a game in the Champions League is remarkable. Donny van der Beek and Juan Mata as your two holding midfielders. I mean, this was Fergie-esque, wasn't it? This was unbelievable. Uh, Mata started, van der Beek, as I said, but Greenwood was in, Elanga was in, Amad Diallo was in. Six players made their debuts, Ian. This, for me, was a challenge to the group that he has. That it's a clean slate for everyone, that he's open to use everyone do you think the players are going to respond to that? Maybe the players that weren't involved against Young Boys are going to respond to that? To a degree, yes. Um, I, I think, um, you know, there was a, I wouldn't say crowd-pleasing because that sounds frivolous. You know, there was a sort of broadly political aspect to blooding these players for the benefit of those players and, you know, given the stakes in the game. I'd be surprised if many established first-teamers are that's worried about um, a previously barely known teenager taking their place. I think, you know, there is competition for places in parts of the United team, less in midfield perhaps, but I would be very surprised to see Juan Mata replacing Fred, for instance, um, as, as a holding midfielder. Manchester United won the group. Does anyone think they're getting to the quarterfinals? We haven't seen the draw yet. Blind draw. Do you see them going through, Tom? Mm, no, I don't. A lot will rely on Cristiano Ronaldo and whether he comes up with those moments that he did through the group stage because let's be honest, without some of those, you know, Ranyu wouldn't have been playing the kids last night against Young Boys and Man United would have desperately needed a win. So a lot will depend on that. I don't know. I'm being I'm being a bit grumpy and downbeat about Manchester United on the podcast today and a bit about Ralph Ranyuk. So I'm going to continue and I'm not doing it to wind you up. I think they might struggle in the next round. Atletico's there, Sporting's there, Salzburg's there. Fingers crossed for this draw on Monday morning, by the way. You sound very hopeful, Hugh. Is it just being I am. rid of Solskjaer or is it 
Is it Ranić? Is it the choice of coach and what you've heard that, as a Manchester United fan, makes you enthused? No, no, no. I wouldn't base it on what I've heard. On what I've seen, there's clearly a plan. It's obviously the very early stages of that, but there's, there is clearly a plan. The plan that Manchester United have does work for some teams. The issue is it doesn't work for all players, and I don't think it's going to work for all the players in Manchester United's team. I worry for Harry Maguire defending 15 metres inside the opposition half, for example. Yeah. But it's clear there's a plan to, to condense the pitch as much as possible, to win the ball back at very, very high. And Manchester United's forward players, whether we like it or not, there's quality there. For me, it's a plan that could work for Manchester United, which is why I'm positive. And already, I think a few of the players are just playing with a little bit more confidence. I don't know if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was holding them back. I don't like blaming the coach for that because I think you've got to give everything when you go over the white line. And I don't think, for me, at that level, you play for Manchester United, the manager should be, you know, getting you to go out there and just try your absolute hardest. I know confidence is something that's not easy, but I think the players at Manchester United, as Cristiano Ronaldo shows, you know, you don't have to play well as a team to play well as an individual. And I think there was enough individual talent there to have got Oli some more results. But there you go. We are where we are. I'll, I'll take it because I think Ralph Rennick, um could be a success. But I wonder whether Xavi is going to be a success at Barcelona. That huge story in the Champions League, Barcelona's exit. They didn't get past the group stage for the first time in 21 years. They were swept aside 3-0 by Bayern Munich. And they only scored twice in their six group games. Uh, Xavi said, this is the Champions League, but this is also our reality. It's the situation we're in. I'm angry. This is the reality and it pisses me off. We have to tackle it face on. There's nothing else for it. A new era starts today. We start from zero. Our objective is the Champions League, not the Europa League, which is where they are. But that's our reality now and we have to try and win it. Seventh in La Liga as well, Ian. I'm not sure he can turn it around. Nothing to do with him as a coach, but the materials he's going to be working with over the next few seasons might not be at the level that he's aiming for. Do you think he can turn it around? It depends a lot on the patience that's shown to him. The choice of Xavi as as head coach comes with a certain degree of patience because um, obviously club legend, etc. They've been through too many coaches in the last two years so um, you know as long as he doesn't become so exasperated that he walks then I think he will have a, a degree of patience from those above him your, your point about the the players he's got to work with yeah clearly at the moment it's uh, it's insufficient I mean the last Barca that Xavi played in had um, Messi Neymar and uh, a Luis Suarez at his peak up front at the moment he's waiting for Martin Brathwaite to see if he can be fit again that's that's a pretty stark contrast, and and you know, and asking Luke de Jong if he can perhaps stray outside the penalty area occasionally, um, you know, it's it, it it's a pretty harsh decline. However, there are a group of young players who, teenagers actually, um, around whom you can imagine a fruitful future as long as they stay. Pedri, Gavi, Ansu Fati, if he can be fit. So, uh, you know, I think. Uh, Xavi will have the idea that he can cultivate this group so that in two or three years' time, they are calling themselves, you know, light heavyweights, at least in Europe again. Um, 
the difficulty is is the tone as well. I mean, all this stuff about that's our reality. This is being echoed quite a lot, and it was it was something that Ronald Koeman said quite a lot, and and it it does sound like it does begin to sound like a terrible, dreary fatalism. I think Xavi knows that that is that is not the mood that you want to create, but at the same time, he needs to make it clear that well, I suppose brutally, this isn't my fault. Um, this is our circumstances, and and that you know you're going to have to bear with me on this. But you know he will be very diligent. He will be very thoughtful. He will be quite Guardiola-like. But it may be that you know he's got to he's got to deal with two, maybe three years of Europa League football in order to to start climbing back to where they used to be. Ian, I wondered. I was thinking about Barcelona this morning, and I wondered whether and maybe this is too lazy of me. But we're obviously just riffing off Manchester United. Then is the Barcelona situation? similar to United in the sense that there's money to spend, it's just been spent badly and bad decisions have been made and there's a need for structure? Or is it a little bit more similar to Arsenal, say, where there's a little bit less money than they're used to and, again, managers haven't been given time to rebuild from from not the bottom up, but, but to get a bit higher. I just wondered whether either of those were more similar just to kind of give listeners an idea of where, where they're at for such a big club in a difficult situation. Are they more Arsenal or are they more Manchester United? More Arsenal, quite clearly. I think, I mean, I think that's, a, um, that's a very good question. They, yeah, far more Arsenal um, in the sense that um, there are big debts to service. And while Barcelona have income streams, to compare with Manchester United, they have a lot more constraints on how much they can spend immediately for various reasons, partly to do with La Liga, partly to do with post-COVID. Their ability to sign superstar players now, I think, has overnight diminished slightly. You know, there is that thing. Barcelona is the kind of club that a lot of footballers grow up wanting to to join. But Europa League, seventh place in, in La Liga Barcelona with less extravagant wages than they used to have that that's a, that's a different that's a different prospect when you're going out um, to recruit so so yeah i mean absolutely tom far more arsenal at the moment than manchester united well we'll see if barcelona can get anywhere near their best over the next few seasons but i think it's going to be a long road back for xavi uh, as their manager that's our conversation all wrapped up on the european football and the champions league of course we'll be talking leeds united next before we discuss how Omicron and new infections of COVID-19 could affect football over the coming weeks. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, like us, rate us, and of course, make sure you're subscribed. Leeds United sit 15th in the Premier League after their draw with Brentford last time out. Marcelo Bielsa's side have only managed three wins this season in the league. They sit six points above the relegation zone after 15 games. Now, remember, they finished ninth in their first season back in the Premier League last year after a 16-year break. Let's speak to the Times' Rick Broadbent, who I imagine I can describe as a long-suffering Leeds fan as well. Rick, what do you think the main issue has been for Leeds United this season? If we spoke to fans, they'd immediately just go to the default, oh, half the team has been injured, which to an extent is true, but um, I think it goes much deeper. I don't think it's Bielsa a burnout in, in the sense that they're physically done, but I think mentally they look they look a bit shot, to be honest. You know, they're not making decisions like they were last season. They're not getting at teams like they did last season. 
the identity that you know annoyed some people because people you know Gary Neville was always going on about how brilliant Leeds were when they were three 0 down at half time, but there was a certain joy to watching them play last season mostly, and that's just gone. So I think it's it's really deep. Some of it is down to having such a tiny squad, which is Bielsa's way, but that's been sort of found wanting. So when you know Bamford's been out for a long time and they haven't really got anybody who can replace him, same when Calvin Phillips is out injured, which he's again now. It's looking grim, to be honest. The weary optimism of um of Leeds supporters, I think, is probably um plateauing, to say the least. What sort of reaction are you expecting from the players, from the management team? Are you, you know, Marcelo Bielsa is seen as a footballing legend. What are you hoping he does in the coming weeks to arrest the situation, or do you expect maybe in January the club to do something there? I think. Um, well, first, first of all, he is a legend. I mean, you, you've got to remember this is a club that was useless for 15 years, 14 years before he pitched up. You know, we were picking managers on pub recommendations, people like Dave Hockaday, and we actually had an owner who failed the fit and, you know, fit and proper test, which is almost impossible to do. You know, this club was shocking, really. So he is a legend in Leeds terms, but um, they've got to do something. I mean, the easy thing is say, oh, they need to buy some players and they do need a bigger squad. I mean, they've just I mean, they brought in Junior Firpo from Barcelona, who looks like he's barely played football for, well, uh, maybe ever. Um, I mean, looks, <laughs> he looks shocking. And they're relying so much on Rafina. You know, without him, they'd already be in the bottom three. Because those three wins that you mentioned, I mean, they're all by a single goal. The Norwich one needed Tim Krul to sort of jump over a ball. Watford, there was a disallowed goal by Watford, which, you know, helped. Palace, 85th minute penalty. I mean, they've been squeaking points. It's hard to think, think what they can do. I mean, they looked really good in the first half against Spurs. That looked a bit more like the old old Leeds, albeit, you know, Spurs weren't great at that time. I mean, they're getting better now. But um, I don't know. I mean, um, they're going to have to buy someone because Phillips is out for a long time by the looks of it. And they haven't got anybody who can fit in there. But they just need to get back to sort of what they were doing last season, which was a bit gung-ho going for teams and um, playing with a bit of joy. I mean, there's not, there's not much joy in that team at the moment. So it's it's really hard. Um, but if they are sort of jaded mentally, which possibly are, then I don't know how you get that back. Tom, what do you think about Leeds right now? What sort of situation are they in for you? Do you think they'll get out of it, particularly at the bottom of the table? It's a really strange one because from the outside, there's still, Rick mentioned it there, that kind of Gary Neville slight laziness about them in that, oh, it's Marcelo Bielsa, it's Leeds, we all love them, they're fantastic. But they have struggled this season. And I think Rick's point about them being mentally shot is the most interesting to me because that does seem the case. They do seem a little bit lacking in ideas. But one thing I was wondering was I was just looking at the fixture list and it's pretty scary stuff (laughs) that they've got coming up. They've got Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal, Liverpool, and then Steven Gerrard's resurgent Aston Villa as the next five games to end the year, which is pretty, pretty stark. But one thing I was wondering, Rick, was do you think that playing against these bigger teams, these tougher teams, might help Bielsa and the players maybe reset the system, the formation, the tactics, and take a bit of the pressure off? Because they're obviously games that you'll go into where the fans and the pundits won't be expecting you to get anything. And maybe that might help a Bielsa team maybe spring a surprise because the pressure's off a bit. You're not dominating possession. You can kind of go back to some of those basics of pressing, trying to win the ball. Do you think that might help in a strange way, the tough fixtures they've got to come? I mean, it, it might do. I mean, these, you know, these sort of fixture lists rarely sort of pan out as you expect, don't they? I mean, I mean, bear in mind, they did beat Man City away with 10 men last year. So, um, you know, I don't think that one will hold too many, too many fears for them. But it's just that they don't look like that side of last season that, 
you would think, yeah, they, they will create chances. And so they've got a chance if they, you know, don't let in three at the other end. Um, this season, they're just not... It's funny because I was looking at the stats and apparently they're eighth in expected goals in the Premier League, fourth in possession. You think, well, those are not stats of a team that's going down. But then I don't know who's expecting these goals to go in because, I don't know, maybe they haven't seen lead shooting because they, they, they're not the greatest. But I don't know if the bigger teams is going to help. Playing against the bigger teams is going to help. And they've barely scored more than a goal in in a game this season. And it's hard to think that they're going to um, stop those sides, the Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, from scoring at least one. So uh, it's hard hard to see where they're going to get a win from, especially if Bamford is out. I mean, it sounds like Bamford might be out again, uh, tweaking his hamstring, having come back from his hamstring. So uh, it's tricky. I mean, I think they, the fixture list evens itself out over the course of the season, obviously, but they need something. I mean, they've got Dan James in with a lot of high expectations. I mean, he hasn't really sort of done too much so far. Stuart Dallas was brilliant last season. I mean, he's played largely at fullback this season, so hasn't really influenced much and just hasn't been on form. Luke Ayling, I think, is a huge miss. I mean, he's back, which is a good a good thing um, because he's a bit of a... Um, apart from being a good player, he, he seems to be a sort of almost spiritual sort of leader. I mean, he, he, he does sort of go forward and, um, yeah, I mean, it'd be great to see him rip off his hairband and sort of celebrate a goal or something. But um, I don't know, it's, it's tricky. Are you down about Leeds at the moment? I mean, you know, I've followed them long enough to not, not expect too much. But I think just because of last season, I mean, I, I just totally enjoyed last season so much. And it wasn't even the results, although they helped. But it's just, you watched them and thought, this is going to be fun. You know, they might get turned over, but it's, it's going to be fun and they're going to have a go. And it's not been like that this season. And once you get into a rut, you know, it's, it can be quite hard to get out of. I, I, I don't think they'll go down. I think, they'll, I think they've got enough to, to stay up. And I think there's enough dross around to sort of be... The high end of the dross sort of league, um, but it is it is surprising. I mean, you thought they might. I, I thought they'd struggle a bit more than last season, but not to this extent. I do want to ask you about the future of Leeds United. I don't know if you've seen the stories, but in, a, in the NFL, the San Francisco 49ers storied franchise, and they have an investment arm with an option to own 100% of Leeds United and Ellen Road. By January of 2024, it's been reported. 49ers Enterprises increased their stake in Leeds to 44% in November. The deal to take total ownership could be worth in excess of £500 million. Now, Chairman Andrea Redrizzani remains the majority shareholder. His company, Acer, has the option to void the deal. But it has been widely expected, I've been reading, that there will be a takeover that happens before 2024, Rick. What do you think the future of Leeds is? Will they have new owners soon? The only honest answer is I don't know if that, that will happen. Um, I mean, I do know that um, you know everybody's firmly in Radrazani's corner, you know, given what, what he's done for this club and given the owners they've had in the past from... Ken Bates through to Salino. Yeah, they certainly um, will support anything he does. If that means selling to San Francisco, then um, you sort of think on paper that can only be a good thing. But, you know, sometimes these owners, I mean, the Rajasani seems to have the heart of the club, albeit, you know, he seems to understand the place. But yeah, I mean, they could do with more money. They could do with a new stadium for a start. I mean, they've got one big stand and three sort of grotty sort of relics from the 1970s. Um, so they could do with that. But I think that, I think the thing that Leeds fans are more worried about than that is, Bielsa, you know, he's very deep into this project. I mean, he doesn't usually stay around this long. 
which which might be why we're having this sort of effect on the pitch now because it's sort of unproven um, how his methods work at this stage. You know whether they can go this players can buy into it for this long. Digressing slightly, but that PowerPoint presentation he did after Spygate and Derby and when Frank Lampard's <laughs> head was exploding, you know that eighty-minute PowerPoint presentation. Imagine what it's like for a player sort of facing this on a weekly basis. I mean, it's got to sort of be quite exacting. So. What's going to happen to Bielsa? Presumably, he's going to go at some point, whether it's next season, the season after. I mean, he's not going to be here for, for too long. And then, obviously, you're going to lose Rafina. I mean, I think that's a given, almost, that at some point he's going to want to go on. So, you just wonder where it will go, even if they stay up. But if they go down, you could see it all splintering quite quickly. And, you know, I don't imagine the 49ers would want a championship club because of the way Bielsa operates, signing one-year contracts over the day before the season starts. People have started to live a bit sort of day by day and not really think too much about the the long term but um the whole 49ers thing i think is you know it just sounds quite sexy doesn't it i think that people would would go along with it rip broadbent thank you for joining us on the game podcast plenty more to come as well as we look ahead to a big game at anfield this weekend The new variant Omicron of COVID-19 is spreading quickly and that has meant um, some new restrictions announced yesterday by the government in the United Kingdom. The NHS COVID pass is going to be required for venues of more than 500 people indoors, unseated outdoor venues with more than 4,000 people and any event with more than 10,000 people. So that could be a direct effect on football. But there have been outbreaks at a couple of Premier League clubs, Spurs and Leicester already, who should have important Europa League games tonight. Tottenham's game against Rennes has been officially postponed by UEFA. Leicester meant to be taking on Napoli. It's reported that seven of their players have been struck down by COVID-19, which I think bears the question, what will happen to football if this continues? over the coming weeks. Now, of course, we will know more about exactly, I guess, the exact effects of this new Omicron variant in the next sort of 10 days as new data comes in. And I guess that will define what happens in terms of us being able to go to football matches or even if uh, football matches will continue. Without knowing that, it's very difficult to answer this, except to say at this point in time, as we're in the unknown, Tom, should fans still be going to football matches? Oof, I think that's incredibly difficult. I think I would say if other events such as theatre, music, concerts and all that kind of thing are ongoing, football fans should not be uh, excluded, particularly because when you think back to some of the decisions that have been made as we've dealt with coronavirus, often sport fans and football fans were hit hardest in that we were made to wait the longest, I think, in some some of the waves and some of the lockdowns to come out of them to go back to ground. So, you know, we are in this period now with passports and people being double vaccinated where the belief is that that gives you a bit of protection. So I think if if that's the wider view that other events can carry on, I don't see the need for football to be hit in any other way. You only need to look at Manchester City's game in the Champions League without any fans. I mean, I was watching bits of that and I thought, no, let's not go back to this. I was like having horrible, horrible flashbacks to it being winter and being watching watching a football match with no fans. It, it wasn't it wasn't fun. Obviously, serious health uh, concerns can get in the way, but yeah, I would say for now, I think 
a bit of caution is good, but I don't I don't think we should we should be looking at a blanket ban on fans going to games just yet. There is going to be an issue with rescheduling matches, though, Ian. Um, for example, Spurs against Wren. There is a December the 31st cutoff point. Um, now, UEFA might relax that. I don't know. But Wren go on their winter break on the 22nd of December. And we know how busy the Christmas period is for teams in the Premier League. So what happens now? Uh, yeah, this is this is complicated. I, I I I think UEFA won't won't be inclined to be absolutely stringent about that if there is no alternative. But yeah, it's hard to see how it it can slot in, and and it's already complicated from a sporting integrity point of view because the simultaneous match involving Vitesse Arnhem and Musa does have a slight bearing on what Spurs need to do in their match against Rennes. So, you know, already it's, well, it's clearly very imperfect, which doesn't matter in the overall public health picture. It's an ominous indication of, of what what might happen if if more matches are have to be postponed. And, you know, the, the calendar, as we know, is not is not suited to, to a great traffic of postponements. It's it's so tight anyway. It's so tight partly because of what happened with the last outbreak. And yeah, it um, it will be mind-bogglingly complicated for administrators if, if there's much more of this. Uh, what do you think then, Tom? Do you think UEFA will relax it? And, and if we see, here's the big question, I, I think, for me. If we see a raft of games being having to be postponed, what happens further down the line with the league? Do we start to forfeit matches at any point in time? We've been through this before. Or do we keep you know, knocking games back and back and back and then worry about that as we get to the final sort of six weeks? I think the latter guess of yours is probably the right one. We have to remember money talks, doesn't it? With all these competitions, all the sponsors, all the television deals, all that comes into play when it comes to thinking about forfeiting matches. In fact, sadly, those factors probably are at the forefront of clubs' minds as much as it, when it comes to the points and the competition. So I don't see forfeits becoming a real a reality if there are situations such as Tottenham's that there will be some sort of leniency further down the line in terms of when these matches can be played. Um, and yeah, potentially the Premier League will take a hit uh, and we'll see a big raft of madness in April uh, and late March with fixtures coming thick and fast and maybe we'll be back to the days of a Premier League match every single night of the week. Who knows? It's same, same with fans not going to grounds. I don't see forfeits and matches not happening at some point as a reality just yet. Uh, we look like we could be in a similar situation. Fingers crossed we are not. And we have some good news over Omicron in the next couple of weeks. Ian Hawkey, Tom Clark, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so and to Rick Broadbent as well and to all of you for listening. Remember, we will be back on Monday just before the Champions League draw. So that's going to be slightly awkward for us. We'll see what we can do with that. Um, otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and the Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. In the meantime, of course, we'll react uh, to Stephen Gerrard's homecoming, if you like, as Aston Villa boss going back to Liverpool at the weekend. So just go online, check it out. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month three. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Monday. Mm-hmm.